Good afternoon, everybody, or good evening, depending upon where you are in the world. Um, my name is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore, and we're delighted to have Ellie Griffiths back with us for another virtual chat. And her brand new book is called Bleeding Art Yard. And I was just saying, I have copies of both iterations. Here's the UK edition right here. And we just have a handful of signed copies. Um, I don't know if you can see that. with the. And then here's the US edition, which just came out as well. Two very interesting uh, design approaches, and they're both really cool, just very quite different. Um, but I will go ahead and put links to both of them in the comments field, should you wish to purchase one. And if you have questions for Ellie, just go ahead and put them in, and Barbara will bring me back on screen uh, towards the end of the hour. So, Barbara, over to you. Oh, thank you very much. How lovely to see you, Ellie. Are you in your garden shed once again? It looks a little more upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm in my garden shed. Hi, Barbara. It's lovely to see Hi. you looking as and lovely you too. as ever. When I wrote to your publisher and I said she'll be joining me from her garden shed, they said, no. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. here I am. It's, it's my, I think I said to you last time that my husband always says I shouldn't call it the shed um, because, you know, it, it's, it's quite nice. But <laughs> anything else sounds a bit pretentious, you know. Oh, it's my studio. It's a shed basically but it's a really rough night here so if you hear oh. like rattling it's raining it's wind it's really is sort of wild night out there so it's quite atmospheric so don't worry if you hear like sort of creaking and groaning it's not me it's just okay well or it's not stephen king hiding out in the, <laughs> yeah, in the there's garden. a in true stephen king style there's like um, a branch of the tree that does bang against the window sometimes so. Do you know the weather has been so bizarre we have had more rain in arizona since august than seattle and, you know, talk about a complete reversal of, of weather. We've had several events, Michael Conley, last week, where, you know, the weather just went wild. Um, wow. And there's no predicting it. So yes. anyway, let's hope that we don't get cut off. And I, uh, last time, when your most recent Ruth Galloway book came out, um, John Charles of our staff, who's a major fan, talked to you, but now I've got her back for Harbinger. <laughs> so this is, in fact, they, they're talking about this as a standalone, but honestly, this is Carpenter in her third book. Um, in fact, Ellie won an Edgar for The Stranger Diaries and then went on to write The Postscript Murder, both of which were Harbinger Carr down on the seacoast. And in some ways, I think you could compare them to Richard Osmond, although not entirely, but you know, it's that same kind of wonderfully English, eccentric, <laughs> you know, humorous um, take um, and, and with senior citizens involved, right? But now yes. you've moved Harpender to London, you've taken her back and she has a more um, responsible job. So tell us about why she's in London and what's her role. Yeah, so she's had promotion and she's moved to London. And yes, you're absolutely right, Barbara. It, it kind of is a standalone, but it is also part of a sort of series because it's yeah. the third book to have Harbinder in. And they're all a little bit different. So the first one, The Stranger Diaries, is a kind of sort of modern Gothic story. And as you said, Postcard Murders is a little lighter, a little cosier, I guess. Um, and this is the third one. Now, the writer Sophie Hannah, when she talks about her books, she says they're link detached. You know, like houses are sometimes. 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. They're linked attached. Um, so in this book, she, she gets promotion. She moves to London. And it's quite a big deal for Hubinder because it's promotion and it's a new place. But also she's up till now really been living with her parents in, in her in her sort of mid-30s. Uh, she's gay. She's out to her parents, but not completely. So this is a whole new sort of chance for her. She she uh, shares a, a house with, with two other women. She has, she has two uh, housemates, and um, she's got this responsible job. And her first case is a is is a prominent politician who uh, drops dead at his school reunion. So it's very high profile. So it's all it's all changed for Harbinder in this book. It really has. Now describe to me what yard means in your title, because it means a different thing to American readers. Well, it's a real place. Um, it's it's near um, London Bridge in uh, in London, right in the centre of London. And I know you know London really well, Barbara. It's um, and it's a uh, really it's a courtyard. I guess it's short for courtyard because it's just like a little square space, uh, um, cobbled space between buildings. And there's only sort of one entrance and exit, so it's a little bit claustrophobic seeming, and sort of high buildings all around it. But it's a cobbled courtyard, so I guess that's what it's called. And there's a restaurant there. So my first, this is where I, I found it was uh, uh, once a year I, I meet up with my old friends from publishing because I used to be an editor and I worked for HarperCollins, and a group of us have kept in touch, and we always meet um, for lunch. And just before sort of COVID and lockdown, uh, we had a lunch in the lovely restaurant in Bleeding Heart Yard. And I thought, oh, I've got to remember that. I've got to remember that as a title. Um, and, and when I had the idea about Habinda moving to London and this whole school reunion thing, I thought, I know how I'm going to tie it in. I love that. Well, you know, we really are two people divided by a common language. <laughs> And, you know, you say garden shed, but we say yard, not garden, most of the time. Yeah, yes. uh, garden, garden in America is more pretentious. Most homes have what we refer to as a yard. If you have a garden, it's going to be, you know, much higher scale, all the rest of it. But courtyard, um, I agree that, you know, that it is indeed short for courtyard. And, um, you know. I think if we said yard, we would expect it to be um, concreted over. You know, more like ah. a builder's yard. But oh, yes. if, if there's any grass, you'd say garden, even if it was tiny. But right. yes, it's so interesting, isn't it? You know, it absolutely is. And we did talk about digression here. Um, and I maybe I can even show it to you. We decided that we would light our yard garden for Christmas this year. And so these people came in and we have a giant saguaro. I mean, it is a serious oh. saguaro. And they arrived with two bucket trucks and they spent an entire day twining the saguaro in all of its arms with Christmas lights. And then they did a tree over on the other side and, and then across the front of the house. I'm telling you, the neighborhood is just like a blaze. And I have no idea whether our neighbors are unhappy with it, but- um, oh, it sounds wonderful. It well, sounds it really magical. is. I'll, I'm looking for, a fo I can show you the photo here on my phone or I can email it to you, but it's sort oh, of fun to see it. Do. But anyway, um, oh, here it is. Let me see if I can. Yeah, I can. So this is how it looks. <gasps> that's huge. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it looks it's like it's sort of, got diamonds on it or something that's beautiful wow it really does but this is the first time my point was that i felt that we had a garden yes, <laughs> as opposed to a yard i see so. right i hadn't really realized that distinction yet because definitely for us yard would be concreted over and maybe kind of industrial in some way but right. um 
yeah however little here it's a garden and my garden's not very big but it has a shed in it and this is where i, am. I love it all right so we've now kind of cleared up in the street <laughs> of the that, yeah. and in fact as patrick pointed out the covers are um the cover <laughs> designs are very different and you know the thing is if ellie will show you the um yeah the U the uk cover is quite a lot different um, and, you know, I think that's really interesting because clearly there, there are whole platoons of people at publishers whose job is to try to figure out what the packaging is that will work for every country. And um, if you get foreign editions, then I'm sure you're frequently surprised by, you know, what they decide it, and they can change the title as well. Authors don't, don't get to do that. Authors own the copyright to the to the text to the story, but the publishers get to decide on the typography and the packaging and the cover art, and most of the time the title may be in conference with the author. I don't think readers often realize that you're not in total control of your book. No, and that's true. And and of course, as I was just saying, I used to be in publishing, and do you know the thing that we dreaded was the author who had views on the cover. Yeah, of you course. Know, the author that says, well, you know, I, I really think it should be like this because it is, and I try and remember this as an author because it is really a marketing tool, as you so rightly said. And of course, the marketers want, want to sell it to, to bookshops like yours. So they want to, the thing that totally appeals and um, that that's really important is a marketing tool, really. But I do think it's interesting because quite often, um, you know, I pub my books are, are published sort of around the world now, you know, I think it's a I don't know, 25 different countries, um, including sort of Far East and things like that. Most of the covers are quite like the British covers, but the American ones are kind of out on a limb. They are quite different, particularly with the Ruth books, those very sort of colourful ones. Yes. And it's really interesting how that's worked. And I actually really love this this US cover of, of Bleeding Heart Yard. And I think the thing is, this isn't the, I haven't got the final one here, this is a proof, but you can see it actually has the flower that, that is a bleeding heart on it. So I can suppose it kind of looks quite, um, oh, sort of slightly gothic-y, slightly sort of literary, but I think this looks more crimey. I do too. I, Plus it actually it, looks like the place where the crime it it's does. Happening. And so you know, I, the idea of sort of stepping into, you know, one of one of these lovely London streets, I think it has, a, ironically, of course, because it's not done in London, I feel it has a really London feel to it. So actually, uh, for me, that probably might represent the book slightly better. Well, I think it probably does, plus I'm not sure Americans would even recognize the bleeding hard flower. You know, so it just well, be I had to have it pointed out to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So anyway, let's talk a bit about dark academic, because all of a sudden this subgenre, so to speak, I love the way that books keep sort of sorting out. I predicted you might and I might have even talked about this three or three years ago when people, people are always saying to me, what'll be the next big thing? I said it was going to be the Gothic. I said the Gothic was due a revival. But now we have the dark academic mystery, which is like a kind of a subgenre of the Gothic. And tragically, at least in this country, we are seeing a lot of really terrible dark academic things yeah. happen, like the shooting yeah, at the yeah. University of Virginia. But what do you understand dark academic to be? And here it's usually summed up by Donna Cart in The Secret History. But I think Joanne Harris has written a couple of absolutely crackerjack. Um, so do I. Know. The Narrow Door. That's an yes. excellent one. Yes. 
Um, I'm a big Donna Tartt fan, though, actually. And, uh, you know, I, I, when was it out? It was the 90s, wasn't it? I, I think I, I read The Secret History was before I was published at all. And, yeah, I absolutely loved it. I loved The Goldfinch as well. Um, yes, it's really interesting, isn't it, how things come round um, again? And, and uh, I mean, you must you must see that very much in sort of your position in the sort of literary world. You must see that quite quite a lot. And even I remember it from sort of publishing things sort of coming round again. Um, I, do, I, I suppose it is because there is an element of locked room mystery about a school or a university. And there is this sort of, you know, small group of characters. Um, and you can play on that and you can play on the fact that I think uh, the, the, the characters in my book, there's, there's not very much it actually in school, but of course they're at a school reunion. So they're remembering their school days, which were 21 years ago. Um, and, you know, that there is there is that sort of sense of remembering the days when you were sort of 18, 19, 20, which are such formative years in your life. And 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 they have a disproportionate effect on you, don't they? For example, I, I think of the sort of music I like. It, it's, it's probably nearly all music that I got into at university, you know, sort of very, very influenced by my friends then. So those sort of tastes, I think there's a, I'm, I can't remember it exactly, but there's actually a lovely piece in The Secret History where Richard says that. He says, everything was formed in me by this group of friends mm -hmm. at school so i think that probably um accounts for some of the allure of it and i think i read somewhere that uh dark academia became quite a thing again during lockdown and i don't yeah. know maybe because we were all locked down i, I don't know and there's a locked room aspect of it but it is yes it's really interesting and done well i think it can be really good and i totally agree about that johan joanna Harris. Joanne Harris series. So, well, I do too. But, you know, just thinking about it, Joanne is writing when people are actually in school. So I forgot about Ruth Ware, her most recent book. It ends it with girl. us. And then she wrote an earlier one. Maybe it was her first one, I think, about a school reunion. So she too has, you know, yes. has gone in. And... So I'm not sure the girl. defining thing of dark academics simply means that there's a school in the background and, and it's kind of a variation on a country house murder in a way because what it really means is that there's a confined space of some kind um whether it's right. an actual campus or whether it's a group of people who were and those are the are the people where the crime occurs to one of them and all of them are the suspects right i think that's exactly right i think it's a version of locked room or closed circle uh um a mystery really and and i i absolutely loved ruth where's the it girl most recent one set in oxford very very clever yes and i i'm a a real sucker for that sort of story i have to say yeah i thought she did it very well i was briefly confusing her with colleen hoover which of course is absurd but <laughs> <laughs> there's no parallel um titles i mean anyway um i've heard this one called dark academic but that's not what you have been writing you know, I mean, you've been, well, I don't know. Do you suppose Ruth Galloway, do you, do you think they could be kind of, kind of called dark academic? I, guess, I hadn't thought of it. No, I hadn't at all, but she is an academic, isn't she? She works at a university. And I think um, because she works at a kind of modern university, um, I suppose you don't have that kind of sort of sense of the sort of dark cloistered halls. She briefly works in Cambridge and I think then right. then you get a little bit more I suppose it's because those sort of modern um campuses don't really uh call to that sort of book so I wouldn't have necessarily no. but I mean she is an academic so we could make a claim for them being and I guess the secret history not the secret history see so yeah, now I'm doing it um 
uh, Stranger Diaries. Right. Uh, that's partly set in a school as well. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. I, I don't like labels. And so, you know, I mean, in a way, I can I tend to push back when somebody says, Oh, look, it's a dark academic mystery. And I think, you know, I'm doing another talk this afternoon with two writers of dark academic mystery. Oh, wow. A debut by Lauren Nasset and then Ashley Winstead. And I think I think in a way, one of them is is looking hard at the fraternity system here. I think here. They're partly inspired by all the really terrible things that are happening on college campuses. But that's not really what your book is about. And if this is such, I wish we could talk about the ending of this book because it's really wonderful. Well, but we'll have to do it just ourselves, but. Really scary to even contemplate it. But anyway, Harbinger, um, here she is. She's in London. She's been promoted. Um, she's not living with her parents. Has she, you know, is her being gay a problem with her Indian community, you know? I mean, her parents are kind of, dis is that a little awkward for her? London would be more comfortable, surely. I think I, I think that's right. I, I want to show, you know, uh, that her parents are very loving and, and very accepting. They absolutely, you know, do accept her uh, because they love her. But I think possibly for the wider community, sort of culturally, I know friends with that sort of cultural background, um, I, th I think possibly it, it, it is a little difficult for her. So I think, and just generally, it's just easier to live away from home, isn't it? I think, although she always says she loves living home and especially her mum's cooking and uh, she mm. has, she has, you know, great relationship with them. Um, but I think it's, it's, uh, it is a little easier for her to, to be. And she mentions as well, it's, it's really great to, to live in London, which is, is a, um, a multicultural city. And, and I took something that she says, something that a friend of mine from the same background, sort of Punjabi Sikh background, she said when she moved to London, every time she saw somebody, a man wearing a turban, she thought they were a family member because she'd come from a place where they were the only Sikh family. And, and Harbinder thinks that at first. So I think she likes the diversity of London and, you know, she she wants to sort of stretch her wings. You know, she she says a couple of times it's taken her a long time and she's only really moved 60 miles away from home, but she has done it. So I think, um, you know, I think it is, it is an exciting moment for her, really. Well, it is. And do I assume from this that you're thinking about expanding her range? She's such a great character. You know, you've written three. Are, are you going to continue to write books with Carpenter in them? Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad you like her. Um, I, I had sort of thought this would be the last one, really, because uh, it kind of... Um, I don't know, it, it sort of moves her on to a different place, I guess. So I thought this might be the last one, but I have since had an idea for another one. So I think it won't be, it won't be the last one. And actually I quite liked writing about her team um, there uh, in London. You know, she has a, uh, a new sergeant called Kim as an older woman who she really likes and a slightly annoying younger man there. So I think there are potential there. And also at the end of the book, she meets up with her friends from the postscript murders again. And I'd love to do something with them again because Natalka, one of the characters there who's Ukrainian and I'm really quite sad that her Ukrainian backstory is still so topical really but um, uh, Natalka has started her own detective agency along with 80 year old Edwin so I'd, I'd quite like to write about them as well so I don't think I'm finished with the characters yet. 
I'm really glad to hear that. I just assumed that um, because, you know, you were opening up the stage, so to speak, that you intended to do that. And of course, I live in fear that you're someday going to wind down the Ruth Galloway series, which is one of my all-time favorite series. And I have been there since the beginning, I like you to say. You really have. You really have supported them. Well, I've said that the next Ruth, which is called The Last Remains, is the last for a bit. So there is going to be a bit of a pause after that one, but but I'm not finishing them forever, no. Oh, good. I'm happy to hear that you said the last for a bit, because, you know, I mean, it's a complicated story. We're digressing off into Ellie's other work here. But um, if you've missed the Ruth Galloway mysteries, they are really spectacular. And I love the Norfolk countryside. I love, you know, all of the interesting, there are some unusual elements in them. There's some really unusual characters in them. Um, there's been a lot of um, character arc progress and so forth going on. So but I can understand that you might want to take a break. What about your Brighton mysteries before I go back to Harbinger? Are you going to continue those? Yeah, I'm writing one at the moment. It's called The Great Deceiver, and it will be out next next fall, next autumn. So, yeah, I will carry on with those. Um, and, yes, I, I guess with the thing with Ruth is that um, there is this storyline, as you said, these many story arcs. There's a sort of major one of her and Nelson, and I kind of want to bring that to a bit of a conclusion in this book, so it seems sort of a time to pause a little bit. But, you know, it's, and also I don't want to, I, I, I only want to write them, you know, when I'm feeling that they're going to be absolutely at their best, I guess. So mm -hmm. I sort of feel that, that it's time for a little bit of a break. But, sure. Um, no, I think... I I think that makes perfectly good sense. You know, you the thing that's wonderful about having different characters is that then different stories can occur to you. So a story that Ruth would never work might actually, you know, be perfectly good for Harbinger or for some other character. And, you know, people who write just one long series, well, those are wonderful and I love them. Um, do sort of shut off some potential storylines that, you know, that could be developed if you had other characters in them, so. That's so true, actually, because quite often I'll have an idea and I'll think, oh, you know, could that be a Ruth idea? And you just kind of know, oh, maybe that's not a Ruth idea, but maybe it is a Harbinder idea, you know, um, part of, of um, Bleeding Heart Yard. When I thought of Bleeding Heart Yard, I first thought, well, maybe I could bring Ruth to London, do something with her, but it didn't seem to work with her. But with Harbinder, yeah. it really did seem to work. So you're absolutely right with that. Yes, and also I want to, I've got a few ideas for some new things. So I'd quite like to start a new series as well. So I want to give myself a little bit of time to think about that. I think that's very, very wise. Now let's talk a bit about Cassie Fitzherbert because Harbinger in some ways is not, she's the investigating character here, but Cassie, who has a really complicated story. She's really, what, I think the character that her story is the one that pushes all the way through the book to either or not be resolved at the end. So tell us about Kathy, Cassie. Yes, yeah, you're absolutely right because um, Harbinder is, is sort of third person character, mm -hmm. and she's she's you know she's the investigator, she's the police side, and they're solving the case. But we do see it from two different points of view as well, and we see it from the point of view of Cassie Fitzherbert. And the first thing she says in the first line of the book, so I'm not giving anything away, is um, is it possible to forget that you've committed a murder? And and she um, committed a murder when she was at school with her group of friends, the group. And, you know, she's put it to the back of her mind to such an extent that she's now a police officer, well-liked, well-respected police officer in Harbinder's team. But then when, when, when somebody dies at the, at the school reunion, 
she's clearly a witness if not a suspect so there's her story that goes through it, and also the story of Anna Vance who's another one of their circle at school who's a kind of outsider she wasn't as sort of wealthy as the other students and she um, has, has in recent years sort of been living in Italy away from them all but now she's come back so her story feeds in as well so actually I suppose in a way Cassie and Anna are, are, are every bit as important as Harbinder in the story. Well and then we also have there is a victim um, we also have a bit of a story from the victim. I don't know if we want to reveal who it is because, you know, he's not like dead at the first page. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of good to read along that way. You work out that if they've gone to a class reunion that one of the classmates is probably yes. going to be, is going to be killed. But um, I, you know, I'm not sure this is really a sophisticated story, a very sophisticated plot. Do you think you could have written it when you first started out? Oh, what a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't think I could, actually, yeah. because uh, I think certainly uh, I have become a little bit more ambitious in plotting and, and confidence. And um, The Stranger Diaries was, was my first standalone. And as we've, exp as we've explored, it, wasn't, it, it ended up not being a standalone. But it was the first book, actually, where I didn't have a written plan. It was the first book where it was all just in my head. Um, and it's my most complicated plot. Up to then, it was my most complicated mm -hmm. plot because it's, again, told in three voices. Um, and it also weaves in a, a Victorian ghost story that I wrote. So it sort of weaves all this into the book and there. Um, and it was and it was, was quite ambitious. And because I, I sort of pulled that off, I thought, uh, oh, you know, I can do this. And I, and I haven't, you know, gone back to doing a sort of chapter plan. I've just sort of trusted myself a bit more. And I um, was looking back with my editor, Jane. I did a little sort of podcast thing with, with my editor because I, I've had this. You know, Jane Wood, of course you do, don't you? Yeah. And she's wonderful, as you know, she's edited all my books. And we went back and we looked at, at the crossing places and she had the very first edition of it there that I'd signed for her in such a wonky Ellie Griffiths signature because I had to know how to do it. It was very funny. Um, but but we looked and the plot is really in, not so good. <laughs> there, there are good things I do think to say about the book, the character of Ruth and the atmosphere yeah. and the setting and the place. But the plot is quite simple i don't think i had quite enough suspects there so and i remember a friend saying to me who wrote for you know you get over here over there don't you the um midsummer murders yes and a friend, and a friend of mine called isabel gray wrote for midsummer murders and she says the rule there is that they've always got to be four people left standing at the end who could have done it and that's always been my rule ever since. So I think I've got better at that. So I, I do think it was a really good question. And I don't think I could have done it at the start of my career and also wouldn't have had the confidence to do it. Well, yeah, I, I think there's both. Uh, confidence is certainly a big part of it. But one of the reasons that I, I asked you that question is that you're really an ace at withholding information and gradually, because we don't know why Cassie says, you know, could I forget that I, you know, is it possible to forget that I committed a murder? And we don't even know what murder it is or who died or whatever. And I think to write a book where, you know, you put that out there, but but then it's so you leak things into the story as you go along. That takes a, a lot of control, I think, to, to do that kind of thing. 
I was really impressed. Um, and, oh. you know, it's not that often that I can't figure out what happened. But I have to say that the end of this book did indeed catch me by surprise. I thought oh, he has written I'm himself so into a corner here. Um, and I thought, just... how is she going to get out? You know, <laughs> but, but you did. Um, okay, right. And kudos to Jane, if Jane ever watches this. I miss you. I haven't seen you oh. for a really long time. We had lunch at the Ivy once together, oh, um, which lovely. I've always remembered. But Jane is indeed a, a brilliant editor. So, she but, really is. Yeah, and a lunch yeah. with Jane, a lunch with Jane is always good, isn't it? It's always a good lunch. It um, is. Yeah, and of course, you know, she is a terrific editor and has really helped me so much along the way. But I'm so happy to hear you say that, Barbara, because you read so much crime fiction. So I'm very, very glad that I have, you know, at least put a few doubts in your head as you read it. But I think that is so um, important, isn't it, about when to give the information? Yeah. And it is something that, you know, we're all learning all the time, aren't we? But because um, you don't want to you don't want to annoy your readers because sometimes occasionally I read a book where so, the, the detective says, says oh I know who did it but I won't tell you and you think yeah. oh but why wouldn't you you know why wouldn't you why would you say to your closest aide well Poirot does it all the time but I guess we can forgive him oh I do know his things but they will not tell you and you think why not you know you might so so things like that that withheld just for the sake of it are really annoying so you want to withhold it a little bit don't you but not in such a way as to to, to the way that you uh, are then sort of obstructing justice if you like you've just got to in a way try and do it naturally and people telling their stories and bits come out but um, I'm glad you think that I pulled it well, off. Well I do and you know the thing is that the stakes for Cassie are really huge I mean because she has a family she you know she has a career that she loves she's a police officer and if it comes out that in fact, you know, she committed a murder, um, her whole life is going to be blown up. Um, you know, so you don't know. I mean, you know, in theory, in theory, we have a murder and a murderer and we have Cassie and her past, but we're not entirely clear whether Kathy is in fact guilty of both or guilty of neither. And if she isn't guilty of neither, then what you've really created is an impossible crime. You're going to have to <laughs> you're going to have to resolve in a way that we can believe it. So I think I think you set the stakes up in this book for for your characters, but also for yourself really high. Now, did you did you plot this out ahead of time or did this one? Are you becoming more of a pantser where you, you know, wrote yourself along and figured it out? What happened? I definitely am becoming more of a pantser, definitely. You know, as I did sort of start off, as I said, with, with a sort of plan that would go from the beginning to the end. I mean, it'd be very sketchy and I'd fill a lot in on the way. But first, you know, when I first started writing, I did always know who did it. And actually, I did know in this one. But um, I didn't sort of know how I was going to get there. So in the structure is, you know, you get a chapter also from Cassie and then Anna and then Harbinda and I wasn't always sure in which order they would go you know as I went through it so it wasn't planned out to that extent you know and somebody asked me today actually um was on a, was on a lovely podcast uh and they said did you write say all the Harbinda all the Harbinda bits and all the Cassie bits and all the Anna bits and put them together but I mean it's it's a very fair and interesting question but it's just I couldn't write like that I have to sort of start at the beginning go to the end so I wasn't even sure which bit would unfold next so um you know and and, and lots of they're a group of, of of people as we were saying who who uh close at school haven't seen much of the other for the next 
21 years. So there are quite a lot of relationship stuff to unravel and, you know, resentments within the group and some sort of social resentments. Anna was not as rich as the others. Some of the others have become so famous that they've almost, fame does that thing to people, doesn't it? It makes them seem very other. So all those things I wanted to explore. Very true. And, you know, the thing is that the wounds that you're dealt in high school, you almost never get over. There's a wonderful woman's book. I mean, it's, I think it's called In Her Boots by a writer named Del Antonia. And um, it's premised, the plot really is premised of, you know, can you get over, ever get over the guy that dumped you in high school? You know, and I mean, and it's true that you are at your most vulnerable, your emotions are highest, your hormones are highest, you know, life is rawest, whatever it all is when you're, you know, when you're a teenager, when you're in your late teens, and, um, and those, those things can carry over your entire life, which I've often thought is the reason there are so many books that are really set at high school reunions or college reunions, you know, because those wounds just never really seem to heal. Yes, I think that's really true, actually. And, and you are so, you know, it is such a point in your life where, where everything sort of gets decided. Funnily enough, uh, when I was at university, I had a boyfriend called Chris, who was a, a medical student and became a doctor. But when I was writing this book, I realized it was the first time I'd ever had a character called Chris. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> Maybe it means, you know, that, that uh, in some ways Chris is history. Or I, I, I really chose the name Chris because I could play a little game with spelling it with a c and with a k and so but it could could have been carl couldn't it? it didn't have to be chris so you know maybe i've sort of carried something about chris all these years but um, obviously i'm happily married for 30 years but you know maybe there was a little little thing about chris that needed to come out in this book i don't know so um it's very interesting i've kept a diary since i was 11 and, and yeah yeah and uh, when you look back it's really worth looking back because you're Feelings are so intense, even even at sort of 11, 12. I really loved a boy called Antonio, and I followed him around a lot when I was 11. And, uh, you mm. know, it's worth remembering that. It really is. I um, I was invited to speak to an honors class at um, Arizona State University a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and then subsequently, we did an event, and an author named Daniel Pink, who's a nonfiction writer, has written a terrific book called The Power of Regret. And basically, my, the theme of my conversation to these kids, and also Dr. Pink's conversation was, as you grow older, you learn to forgive yourself for the things that the, the choices that you made and the things that went wrong. But what you never really get over is regret for the things that you didn't do, that you didn't wow. choose. You know, um, and it's hard to explain that to kids who are like 20 years old because they barely even made any choices. But, you know, I mean, when I was invited to do it, I said to the dean who actually attended the class, which I thought was very nice, said there are only two things I'm qualified to speak about to these kids. One is aging gracefully and the other um, is how to run a small business. But I realized as I was speaking to them and they were sort of recovering from, from the aging part because they're going, <laughs> no, can't be true, um, is that um, what I was really talking to them about was um, avoiding regret. Mm. And, you know, that, that really is um, a very, you know, at, at 82, I can look back and think about all the stupid stuff I did. Um, and, and my husband, who's, I mean, we've been married now for 33 years, but we are not each other's first spouses. And every once in a while, if I start that, he'll say to me, you know, every choice that you made 
means we are here. We are here leading this life, our best lives together, you know? And so there's no point in going back and saying, you know, I wish I had, or, you know, how could I have been so, or whatever. And he's absolutely right. He, he really, really is. is. Yeah. And I bet your talk was absolutely inspiring, although they would have laughed their heads off if you'd said your age because you. Well, I did. No, no, no. No, we talked you about don't. It. Look, but, look that but age. What's really up. interesting is I got, a, I got a thank you letter from the dean um, who attended the class. And, um, and you know, I, I wrote her a follow up to what I, I could have. You know, you know it's, it's hard to really sum up a lot of things in a relatively short period of time and it was also Halloween so I knew that all those kids were perishing to get out of the room and put on their costumes and go, you know so I didn't want to be cruel and make them stay there too long so I wrote up a I wrote up a summary about the different things that I had done and how that you know by being you know a general undergraduate education means I can really talk to anyone about anything I don't have to go look stuff up you know, being a librarian taught me a lot of things about, you know, organizing things and finding things and, you know, which plays into running a bookstore. Reading the law gives you um, problem solving, you know, aspects and long range thinking and all kinds of other things. And so each of the things that I did, whether I pursued them all the way or they didn't pan out, led me to where I am at the moment. Now, it's true that you have to live this long in order for all that to work out. You know, if something takes you out at 50 and, you know, you never got to that point, then you have a different problem. But um, I think I was trying to say to them that, you know, even if you have false starts or even if you pursue something and it doesn't work. And in today's age, I said to them, what if you had gotten a really terrific, you know, tech background and gone to work for Tesla or no, sorry, for Twitter. And then Elon Musk came along one day and fired everybody in your golden future that you thought was all assured just blew up and it wasn't your fault. You know, yes. how do you cope with that? Yes, it's so true. And that's so interesting, uh, you know, uh, about regrets and about everything teaching you something. Something that the um, head, head teacher at my kids' school used to say is that success is a poor teacher. So if you always succeed at yeah. everything, you're not really going to learn, are you? And uh, I certainly think of things that I have not been good at, have, you know, yeah. have, have really teach you some of the setbacks that you have. And I guess also in, in, in books, you know, you put that into books, don't you? Because mm -hmm. a lot of book, a lot of, of, of novels are about making certain choices at certain times, aren't they? They really are. You know, yeah. if you didn't have your career in publishing, it's no, not, you know, I'm sure that your career as an author, I'm not sure, I suspect that your career as an author might have gone differently, you know. Oh, definitely, so, yeah. yeah. But also, I, because I, I came out of publishing to have my kids, my twins, um, that's what sort of, that's when I wrote my first book. So if I hadn't have done that, you know, then I, you know, I wouldn't have had them, which would have been the worst thing of all, but I wouldn't have written a book. And, you know, I worked in a library and I didn't much like it at the time, I have to say, though I love libraries now, but it certainly taught me a lot. Yes, absolutely. I worked in sales once, telesales, and that taught me that I'm very bad at telesales, but oh my good, nothing is ever going to be as bad as ringing someone up and wanting them to buy advertising space. So everything teaches you something. 
Well, and being an author, absolutely everything you ever did can play into yeah. your books, you know, so that's useful. But in point of fact, circling back, you know, back to the book, which is sort of why we're here, um, it, it does apply to both Cassie and Harbinger, this whole discussion. You know, if Cassie hadn't made those choices, then she wouldn't be in the place she is when the book starts. And Harbinger wouldn't be in her new promotion in London. And, you know, I think that's one of the really neat things about writing a character more than once is that you get to show us, you know, how choices um, yes. and continuing choices change them. If you write a total standalone, then the only thing we get to read is what choices, you know, drove the standalone, but then we leave them and we'll never know whether the things that happened in the standalone then transform their lives as they move forward. Yes, and there's always that feeling that you would quite like to know, isn't there? I mean, so many mm -hmm. books that I'd like to know what happened. When I can't sleep, I sometimes try and work out what happened next in, in Georgia Hare books, because you know I'm a big Georgia Hare fan. Oh, me I too. Always trying, you know, and it's 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 sort of tempting to think, well, what happened next? You know, what happened next to Damarell and, and Venetia and Penn and Richard and those oh. last little bits. So I think that is one of the big, wonderful things about writing a series. And in, in the, the Ruth book that I've just finished, Ruth 15, I did try to tie up some of the loose ends from previous books and to sort of show that the, the choices Ruth made and, and Nelson and Kafka and the rest of them have led them to this place. So... Yes, it's a I know. I've always wanted to know because Cotillion was my mother's very favorite oh, Georgia hair. Yep, and Fred, I've always wanted to know what happened to them. And you remember Hugh? One of the yeah. great lines in Georgia hair. Remember when there's a the five Bravo cried Hugh forgetting his cloth because he was a rector <laughs> or Freddie's father, you know, who was yeah. just like superb. And yeah. and but there's they were such a young couple, and they you know they wound up together under difficult circumstances and you leave them when they're just like still teenagers and you'd really like to know how they're yes. like did freddie turn into his father you know what, what happened his father he's such a good character, and i think they were well suited really and that, that showed it because um yeah. jack who's the sort of dashing one isn't he 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 wasn't at all as considerate as freddie and kitty liked doing the same things that he liked doing so i think they would have been happy um but what, yeah, so interesting. And I think, yeah, I think Venetia and Damarel would have been happy even though he was quite a tricky husband. Uh, Good point. And what about Charles and Sophie, you know? Oh, I mean. Oh, yeah. yes. I think they would argue a lot, but they would be really happy, you know? And, they would. And I think there's that beautiful scene where she's looking after her, her cousin, Charles' little sister, and Charles sees her at the bedside and realises her really sterling qualities. So I think she will always have that, wonderful sort of motherly quality that he will I agree uh, I mean I think oh. I think in many ways the the best Georgette here in many ways is a civil contract but oh, you know yes. I, I mean that's just it it's an absolutely brilliant um it's one of the best Napoleonic Regency War you know depictions that you can read. Um, and it ends, in fact, when news of Waterloo comes in. And, yes, that thing, you know, they're waving the papers out of the windows. And do yes. you know, it's a very grown up book, though, isn't it? Because yes, I reread that fairly recently, and I remember not liking it. And when I reread it a couple of years ago, I thought, this is brilliant. Oh, it really is brilliant. And, you know, it, it is so much about the choices that, you know, society and money and life and you know parents and all foist upon you but i have to tell you ellie that for many many years 
thinking about Mr. Jolly, whose most redeeming feature is that he likes song de boeuf Chinese porcelain. Uh, for many, many years, I have gone to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and I have always headed for the song de boeuf vase. There is one in the Met and it's the only song de boeuf, which basically is Chinese ox blood. It's a, it's a particularly yes. fabulous porcelain finish. Um, and you know, every time I go, I think it's my own personal tribute to Mr. Jolly. <laughs> It George did here, you know. Because he loved it, it, didn't he? He yes, loved he it did. for itself. Yeah. He really had that yep. that sensitivity to do that. And sometimes George Hare can, you know, can be quite snobbish, but she yeah. does show that that he was he was a not an aristocrat, but he had that absolute love of those beautiful things. So and there's a good she recognized. Bit in yep, she recognized in that book that no person is all just one thing. Yeah, you know, that's she true. gave them facets, I think, of their I think it's it's the most adult book of all because yeah. a lot of them are you know like Young Love's Dream or whatever it might be. But anyway, um, anybody George. who is Georgia yes. here is going to <laughs> be a brilliant up. stylist, and you know, yay for Ellie. So why don't we call Patrick up and see if he has because we can't really say much more about this book. You know that Cassie wonders if she killed somebody and can't remember it. Harbinger is going to have to figure this case out. Um, and you get to know. You get to know bits of London and uh, you get to travel to Bleeding Heart Yard and you get to find out all the secrets. That's all. So next say. time we talk to Ellie, I'm going to tell everybody ahead of time and then we can actually discuss what happened. <laughs> it's going to be a requirement that you have read Bleeding Heart Yard or you're going to have spoilers. All right, Patrick, what do we have? Anything? Let's see. Well, let's see. There's a question that just came in from uh, Norby who says, is there anything you'd personally avoid or have you avoided when writing a book? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, anything I personally avoided? Well, um, I guess I guess there are lots of things really because you know, as Barbara and I've been uh, saying in our chat, you know, it's all choices, isn't it? And uh, I personally don't like reading really sort of graphic violence or. Um, you know that, that that sort of thing, sort of uh, sort of gruesome description. So I would certainly avoid that. I would say not to say that murder's not violent, and it's one of the kind of slight issues I have sometimes when people call crimes cozy because murder's never cozy, is it? Um, so murder is violent, uh, but but I would always kind of avoid the, the describing it in too graphic or gratuitous a way. So that's something that I'd avoid really, and there's probably I would also avoid really writing about any true crime um just and i know that it can be done so well and and maybe i wouldn't feel like that if it was a true crime that had been committed sort of in victorian times but where there's a chance that anyone might be alive who remembered it that's also mm -hmm. something i would avoid i hope that's answered the question right if not now, tell me people people often say they would avoid writing about children you know children being murdered and things like that yes i mean i i i really would 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 upset me to write that i'm not sure i would totally avoid it though i certainly there have been a couple of child abductions in my books um mm -hmm. and of course it it is something that it, it's the big dread isn't it the, but i don't think i would altogether avoid writing about it sometimes mm -hmm. there's a really chilling but good quote from cesare pavese and he says the things you fear in secret always happen which i hope Definitely don't think that's true. But sometimes I think things that you slightly scared of writing, maybe you should write them. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, let's see here. 
Well, somebody was talking about, uh, let me see if I can find it, the beginning of the program. Uh, why would Americans not recognize a bleeding heart flower? She says, we grow them. An interesting question. <laughs> well, I guess it's just if you know flowers or not. Um, yeah. Uh, right. And I, I, I quite often don't know the, the, the names for things. I would recognize it, but I had to be told that that was a bleeding heart flower. And a, a great name it is too. I love those old names, like sort of old man's beard and things like Love Lies Bleeding. Great names. You know, what's interesting is um, I, I heard just recently a little fact about um, the Beatles, you know, the song Ticket to Ride. We've heard that in our entire lives, lives but I had no idea that that meant an actual ticket and ride was a, was a town in England. Did you know that? No, I didn't. <laughs> is, it in, is it in on the Welsh border, because of course Liverpool. It may right. be, yeah, yeah, something like that. A ticket to ride. Yeah, there we go. A very short digression. Uh, <laughs> well, a very interesting one. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, Carol would like to know: Would you ever consider com combining the three series uh, in some way? Do you think of them as existing in the same world at the same time? What a terrific question, Carol. Um, I don't know. It's a really interesting question. I suppose the fact that I haven't ever considered it must mean that I do think of them as, as being in different um, uh, in different universes, really. But the only thing I've sometimes thought is that maybe um, Ruth might find um, a playbill that has Max Mephisto's name in it from the Brighton Mysteries, and that that would sort of um, cross over in that way, you know, because. Uh, that would be something that was in history and she wouldn't have a chance of sort of meeting him. I do remember as I write this series for, for schools, which, which I know you've had in the shop, the, the Justice uh, series, um, not for schools, but for, for sort of younger uh, readers from sort of eight plus. And I go into schools quite often to talk about them, which I love doing. I was really sorry when I couldn't do it during lockdown. So it's nice to do it again. And somebody asked me there, so a young student about that, so eight or nine, he said, uh, could justice be... Ruth's grandmother and I thought that's such a good question and I sort of don't think she is because Ruth's mother is quite a difficult woman and yeah. somebody who sort of um uh, doesn't doesn't access her sort of emotional the creative side and I think if, if justice had been her mother she wouldn't have been like that so I think justice isn't Ruth's grandmother but it's an interesting thought isn't it mm -hmm. absolutely tiny bit of crossover there somewhere maybe with the Brighton mysteries and Ruth maybe but but um I hadn't really thought about it uh, you know what would what would have been to think of Nelson who knows how interesting that would be I'm not sure I'm not sure she would you know take to him that much I think he'd have to be really on his toes but then again he's used to strong women he likes Ruth he's works with with, with Judy and Tanya his mom is a strong woman so probably he'd be all right um let's see here uh, okay, here's here's a kind of a question. Um, what do you have a favorite mystery novel of all time? If you had to pick, that's a tough one. It is a tough one. Barbara, I do you mean, have one? That's a dangerous one for well, you to ask. Here's the thing. I was asked that yesterday. I did a PBS interview downtown, and he asked me if I had a favorite author, and I said it's really dangerous for me to say that. But um, if I'm picking one, because I just got a, a book from Bloomsbury where I wrote the last chapter in a, in a book about Agatha Christie. Um, and so I said, you know, I, I think 
I think because of the incredible forms that she set up for crime fiction, you know, the murder of Roger Ackroyd is an unreliable narrator and all the rest of it. I said, I really think um, I have to give her, you know, the kudos as B.D. James used to say, um, because of, of the, they were original to her in so many ways. And now people are, are playing on them, you know, that modern writers are. But here's the question that threw me and I'm gonna ask both of you. He then said to me, what's the book you've read that scared you the most? And you know, I had to say to him, I really thought about it. There isn't one. And then last night I mentioned that to, to Dana Stabenow who's here and my husband. And they both said, well, you don't read Stephen King. <laughs> I thought, that's true, I don't. So I've never read The Shining. But Ellie, is there a book that has, you know, really scared you? Or Patrick, is there a book that's really frightened you? Wow, what, what a great question. No I, kidding. I want like, the answer. I felt so stupid sitting there. I like, well, Do you know, this no. is going to sound very sort of uh, pathetic, really. But I think this, this book's had an anniversary recently. But I was... I was really scared by Watership Down. I think it's an amazing book, but the description of um, the, the stories of the Black Rabbit, who's the kind of devil rabbit, mm -hmm. and then there's General Woundwort, who's the sort of fascist rabbit. And I guess I'd read it at quite a young age, but it's quite, has really quite sort of adult themes, doesn't it? And I remember mm -hmm. it giving me nightmares. And um, the, the only modern book that's given me a nightmare was a Sharon Bolton book, Craftsman, about a, uh, Sharon Bolton, I think, is a terrific writer, and it's yeah. uh, about a coffin maker. And and so I guess Sharon. Um, but if I had to pick my favourite mystery, to go back to your original question, uh, Patrick, or the or the, the, uh, the the viewers' original question, it probably would be the Woman in White. Uh, I'm a huge oh, wow. Woman in Span. Excellent. And, uh, I just love his books, and I love his sense of place and his sense of. Um, uh, atmosphere so and all the different uh the, the use of different narrators i i was probably go for the woman in white i'd be torn between that the moonstone and no name but i think mm. i'd go for the woman in what about you patrick um you, i don't know if i could pick a favorite mystery novel but one i was thinking about something that really scared me um books that kind of flirt with madness in different ways um i think edgar Allan poe's stories really at some point in my life really scared me because I mean he's dealing with things like uh you know being walled up uh yes, you know sort of primal primal the task of Amontillado right task of Amontillado yeah. exactly the fall of the house of Usher um you know he had that paranoia of being buried alive you know Benjamin, yeah. and so things like that yeah absolutely I wonder, yeah. I wonder if the reason I couldn't answer it is that I've always I've always recognized it's fiction, you know. I've, I've just, I mean, I have been scared by movies. I mean, I, I remember say, Psycho I mean, terrified me. And yeah. when I was a kid, there was a movie called The Thing, which turned out to be a vegetable, and they cooked it at the end. But I remember <laughs> I was absolutely horrified by The Thing. I was scared for weeks afterward. So maybe, maybe I had to, you know, the visual thing will draw me in. Whereas reading it, maybe it's just because I'm like one step removed from it or something? Yeah, so maybe you read it with, with a sort of slight sense of detachment, trying to solve yeah. it, and how interesting. Yes, what a, what a great question, though. It and was, it's great, yes. 
and you're so right about Agatha Christie as well. I think she, her sort of, because um, you know I wrote a Miss Marple story this year. Right, you did, and I love Marple. That's one of my favorite books of this year. It really oh, is. Good. It was a really fun collection. It was, was great to read them all. Um, but but I, I was aware again of how clever she was with form, you know, with, yeah. and how experimental she was. And uh, I don't think she gets enough credit for that because people sort of think, oh, they're all the same, but they're also not the same and, and so not. clever. I reread her husband, Max, her second husband, Max Mellon's autobiography before I wrote this chapter for Bloomsbury. Val McDermott wrote the introduction and I wrote the, the end of it. Um, and and I, he, he has a, a, a thing and he talks about how much she loved puzzles, how good she was at, you know, puzzles and, and mathematics and so forth. And, you know, I think, I think that that helped her. I mean, I, I also, it's my position that the best thing that ever happened to her was Archie Christie leaving her because he was never going to be the right husband for a person who became successful, that earned more money that you know lived in her head. She was so fortunate, although the trauma of it was terrible for her at a time when divorce was such a disgrace. You know, yes. but, I mean, I understand that. You know, I've always thought she really did have PTSD because for a, a woman brought up in the late Victorian age to have a husband leave her for a mistress and be divorced would have been just like the worst trauma ever. But in truth, talk about what we were talking about earlier about happier endings and so forth. She was a really lucky woman that he fell in love with Nancy Neal because they both played golf and went off to be golf obsessed and left yes. Agatha to get on. Seriously. Wow. And I have to say, you know, from my point of view, it, it's a really good thing for a crime writer to be married to an archaeologist, as I am, and she was second time round. So definitely, I completely agree. It was in, in the end a very happy. Um, Lucy Worsley's recent uh, biography of, of uh, Agatha Christie is, is very good on that period. I think very very. I haven't read it yet. I'd like to, um, but I haven't good. gotten around to it. But I I hadn't realized just how great a memoir Max Mellowin wrote. I was so happy to read it. I, you know, I have this ancient book there and I have Christie's autobiography and also Come Tell Me How You Live, which was her memoir about her marriage to Max. And so it's particularly nice to read that and then read his autobiography when it's his version of his marriage to Agatha. It's just great stuff. I love sorry, Patrick, we've digressed. Hmm? Okay. Yeah, sorry. Not at all. Um, let's see. Well, Jill, who's, I think, tuning in from Australia, says the book that really scared me was The Day of the Triffids, uh, due to the wind rubbing branches against the veranda gutter as I was reading it. Ooh, I bet that was a scary experience. Yes. Yes. I, I watched The Shining while working as a, as a, um, a, a chambermaid in a hotel. So where you watch oh something or read something has a big effect. And, you know, never as a teenager, watch The Shining in a hotel, really, a slightly half-empty hotel, no. no. I've actually no. stayed in that hotel, and I'm telling you, Have it's you? nothing like that. Yeah, it's in the Rocky Mountain National Park, and, you know, I've spent the night there, and it's it's actually quite sedate, so um, maybe that's one reason I never read The Shining. Maybe having oh, stayed in the hotel, I thought it was never going to have that kind of impact on me. <laughs> That's quite a book. He really taps into a lot of our primal fears all in one, yeah. in one package. Um, let's see. Okay, Jill has another question. Um, do you find it hard uh, growing the characters as you write their next book? That's how it's worded. Oh, that's, that's, that's a great question. Um, 
you know it's one of the things that I really like doing and and Barbara and I sort of touched on it a bit the whole idea that um you, you feel a bit sad if you don't get to write the next bit in a character's life so um that's something that I, I really enjoy doing you know um following a character as they grow and as they change and as things happen to them um to make them the people who they are so it's not something that I that I find difficult um, and some, something that I do really enjoy, but not to say that it isn't something that I that I work on because I do. But it is just an aspect of the writing that, that I really enjoy. And it feels a privilege, really. It feels a real privilege to have I've written 15 books about Ruth and Nelson and their wider circle. And I just feel really lucky to have been able to do that. You know how, how wonderful that is. It does feel a real privilege, I have to say. It seems like some authors try to try not to. They they want to keep their characters almost frozen in amber. Yeah, um, and I guess that's not wrong. I mean, Lee Child is very open about that with with Reacher, isn't he? With Jack Reacher, he says he's not going right. to grow, he's not going to change, he's not going to age. Right. Um, and I did a Zoom yesterday with with Peter James, who's who's a good friend and a local author here, and writes that the brilliant Roy Grace books. And he said, oh, he was thirty nine at the beginning of the books, and twenty six books later, he's forty one. <laughs> And, but he said a lot of them happen in the same year or something. Um, yep. But but for me, it was quite, I really enjoyed my characters aging and, and, and changing and growing in, in real time. That was quite important to me. And also it was quite important to me that they, um, given the traumatic things that, that characters in crime novels go through, I, I thought it would be, was really good to show that they are changed by them. Mm. Right. Here's a good, maybe a good final question. Um, Norby from, uh, what is this, YouTube? Will you ever do any short spin-off books looking into the characters' lives from the Galloway series? Oh, what a great question. And do you know what? I, I think I'm going to. I think I'm going to write, um, we're going to publish a selection of short stories next year. Um, which some of which will be with stories that, that I've already written, but some of which will be like these little moments in, in the lives of characters that I didn't have time to write before. So, for example, you know, various Christmases that Ruth and Nelson have had that we don't know about. Uh, I'd love to write, write one about Ruth at school. She grew up in, in South London, an area I know really well, but quite a historic area. Um, so I'd like to write about that. I'd like to write about, you know, Max and Edgar in the war and what they did in the war. I'd love to write about justice as an adult, Harbinder's first day as, as a police officer. So yes, that's that's such a, um, a a great question and it is something that I think I will do. Cathbad, Cathbad's growing up in Ireland. Yeah. Yes, I'd like right. to do He that. and Judy are an amazing couple. No, that would, oh, be, that would be wonderful. Wow. Well, we've, as always, digressed all over the place, but um, you know, if, if you're going to talk for an hour about a book in which you will spoil everything after you just briefly set it up, you have to, you have to digress. So thank you all for sticking with us. Ellie, as always, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Um, it's been so, such a pleasure, Barbara. Thank you so much. And can I just, and thank you, Patrick. And can I just say also, Barbara, thank you for all your support because you have been there for me right from the beginning. So thank you. Well, it's really my pleasure, and it's a favor to me. Give Jane Wood my my regards because it's been way too long since I've I really will. Next I'm time you're so in London, happy. okay. Hmm? Here's an idea. Next time you're in London, three of us lunch Bleeding Heart Yard. We could do that. That would be absolutely wonderful. All right. Well, anyway, okay. thank you all for joining us. Enjoy the Be rest safe. of your afternoon or your evening. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Hello. 
We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.